in many ways, the book of Isaiah should end with chapter 55. The people have been delivered from Babylon and delivered to God. And chapters 54 and 55 are a great invitation to come, to come without price, to come without money, and to receive the salvation that God has provided. We look for a benediction, and in fact, that's what we find in chapter 55, verses 12 and 13, a wonderful benediction that speaks of the mountains and the hills clapping their hands, the trees singing for joy. It'll be a sign for the Lord that will never be cut off. And for those of you who have organs in your services, we hear the postlude beginning to play. But the book isn't over. There are 11 more chapters. Why is that? The mission. The mission. As I said yesterday, the book begins at chapter 2 with that image of all the nations coming to Jerusalem of all places to learn the Torah of God. Why has Israel been restored to their land and to their God? For the sake of the nations. They are to be the lantern out of which the light of God shines on the whole world. But when we look at this section, 56 to 66, we find large blocks that are discussing the dreadful sins of the nation. What's going on? Chapters 40 to 55 could give a wrong impression. They depict a deliverance that is pure grace. There's nothing that the people have done to deserve this. There's nothing that they can do to deserve it. It's just God's grace. Oh, oh. If there was nothing we could do to deserve his salvation, then it doesn't matter how we live. Romans chapter 6. And that's where much of evangelical theology is today. All you need is a birth certificate. Got your birth certificate in hand? Good. Hang on to it. The bus will be here soon. Oh, no. Oh, no. Look at chapter 56, verse 1. After that wonderful benediction, after that wonderful depiction of grace, free grace, keep justice and do righteousness because my salvation is about to come. No, it's already here. Ah, the New Testament language, you are being saved and being saved for Isaiah and for the rest of the word involves a changed life, a life which manifests God's justice and righteousness. What is it 
that truly pleases God? Who are the people with whom he's truly pleased? Did you catch it there in the first scripture reading? Foreigners and eunuchs. No, God, they don't have a birth certificate. They're not the chosen. And what is it about them that pleases him? They have joined themselves to Yahweh. They have chosen what pleases me. They hold fast my covenant. Mm. No, it doesn't matter about birth certificates. So fascinating. Foreigners are excluded from worship. And eunuchs, of course. And here's Isaiah saying... Uh, that was for that time to try to make a point. But God's further point is this. All who will live my life are my chosen. And look what happens then in chapter 56, 9 through 59, 15. Self-serving leaders who don't care about the death of the righteous. People whose religious behavior is really nothing more than self-serving idolatry. People whose iniquities have separated them from God. Oh my! We heard a couple of verses from chapter 59 a few moments ago. But those first 15 verses of that chapter are some of the darkest in the Bible. Here, another two verses. Justice. Remember 56.1? Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. We wait for light, and lo, there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope like the blind along a wall, groping like those with no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among the living as though we were dead. Oh my, these people must be unconverted. Not in the structure of the book. In the structure of the book, they've been delivered. Delivered from Babylon, delivered to God. And yet... Yet this. Do you know what I'm talking about? So what is God to do? Ah, he tells them. He challenges them. You must have a more rigorous self-discipline. You must have a more intense devotion. Try harder. Oh, thank God he doesn't say that. What does he say? Right in the middle of that 15th verse, he says, I'm coming. Oh, thank the Lord. I'm coming, but not this time as the suffering servant who in humility carries away the penalty of our sin. This time he comes as the divine warrior with his sword unsheathed. He comes to defeat the final enemy, the power of sin. You say, well, I'm not so sure about that, Oswald. It's, it's interesting that you move from that description of their sinfulness 
to the description of the divine warrior, but I'm not so sure that there's a definite connection. Oh no, listen to these words. Arise, shine, for your light is come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people's, But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light. These people who couldn't find light. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Oh, in chapters 49 through 52, again and again, God talks about his arm. His arm that is going to be displayed and then In chapter 53, verse 1. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We were looking for a 27-inch bicep. This thing? Ah, but now the 27-inch bicep is displayed. And there's a sword in that upraised hand. He does not say, try harder. He says, let me at you. Let me at you. Oh my. And what will be the result when the divine warrior has done his work? The lantern will be clean and the light will shine out of it to the whole world. The world will see not my light, not your light, but his light, his light shining through us, shining out of us. A light that is, in fact, the glory of God. In these last chapters, the glory of the Lord appears again and again and again. You remember in chapter 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of heaven's armies and the whole earth is full of his glory. Those of you who know Hebrew know that glory in the Old Testament is not something thin and ephemeral in passing. Glory is weightiness, solidity, reality. God wants to share his glory with us which is precisely what Jesus says in the 17th chapter of John. The glory which I shared with you before the foundation of the earth, I have given to them. God wants to make you and me real. Real with the power of love, the might of integrity. The glory of rightness. Oh, he wants to share his glory. And who is it? Who is it who is doing this? Who is this divine warrior? Oh, it's perfectly clear when we come to chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. The spirit anointed one. The one we first saw back there in chapter 9. And then 11 and then 32, and then 42. That one. That one who will open blind eyes. 
who will free the captive. That one who will make us oaks of righteousness. One of the fun things in the study of Isaiah is to see the way he uses tree imagery right through the thing. Remember chapter 6? A little shoot coming out of the burned out stump. Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord to display his glory. Yes, yes. Not my glory, not yours, his. We don't produce our righteousness. He does it. But it is real, real transformation. Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord to display his glory. But then look what happens. We have been climbing a staircase. Who is it who please him? Oh, those foreigners who by his grace are living his life. And we can't seem to do that, God. Here we are clutching our birth certificates and our lives don't look like your parentage at all. And the divine warrior comes, comes to destroy sin in its power over our lives. And the result is, That his light shines through us and the nations come. And who is it who did it? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Ha ha. That's where the book should end. But it doesn't. We start back down the staircase. 61.4 to 62.12 is the mirror image of chapter 60. There it is his glory displayed in us. In this mirror image, it is his righteousness displayed in us. And that gives us a clue. There is a difference, slight difference in emphasis going up the staircase. The emphasis was on our inability. Going down the staircase, the emphasis is on his ability. And you see it? In the second step down. What is it? The divine warrior. Here he is again. Who is it who makes this righteousness possible? The divine warrior. And the next step. Chapter 63, 7 through 66, 17 is our sinfulness. Why do we need a divine warrior? And in this section, it's so interesting. The people again and again are saying, but God, you didn't make us repent. And God says, what? I've been holding out my hands to you through the centuries. And why? Why Not end at 61, 1 to 3, that glorious high point that Jesus used to announce his Messiahship. Oh, the mission, the mission. What is this all about? It is about the nations coming to God because they see him 
in his people. And Isaiah does not want to let us forget that. If he had stopped at 61, 1 to 3, it's very possible that we would have rejoiced in a paroxysm of joy over the beauty of our holiness. Holiness is not for you. Holiness is not for me. Holiness is for them. That's why he comes. That's why he comes in power. That's why he comes in the power of his Holy Spirit to remake us, to rejuvenate us, to bring to reality what is the glorious potential in our conversion. He comes. He comes. And do we say, well, God, you haven't made me holy yet. And God says, for pity's sake, child, I've been trying to. I've been offering myself to you. Take me. That they may know. Oh, those final verses. 66, 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. And I am coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory. And I set a sign among them. From them. I will send survivors to the nations, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, All flesh shall worship before me, says the Lord. Yes. The warrior has come. And he's come to cleanse, to make whole, to make one, to wipe clean the glass of our lantern. So that his light, his glory, might shine out to all the world. But justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. We wait for light, and lo, there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. Oh, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't need to be. You and I can walk in the light. You and I can be the display of his glory. You and I can be oaks of righteousness in this world that seems to be falling apart around us. Invite the divine warrior into your house with his sword unsheathed. I guarantee you there will shortly be some smashed furniture in there. 
but he will turn your hovel into a mansion. Have you ever done it? Have you ever opened the door and said with trembling heart, yes, mighty warrior, come in with your sword. Or if you have, you know what he can do. You know how he can renovate and revive and renew and empower. Oh, it's a walk. Of course it's a walk. People say to me, Dr. O, is, is holiness a crisis or a process? And I say, yes. There must be that moment, that moment when we, recognizing the enmity of our will to our Savior, say, God, I can't do this. Come in here. There's got to be that moment. And I guarantee you it's a crisis. As I said yesterday, he doesn't come with a rose dipped in holy water. He comes with a charred, burning, blazing coal. But then, then, he invites us, as he did to Abraham, chapter 17, verse 1, walk with me. After you've opened the door, the process can truly begin. If you won't open the door, there's not much he can do with you. So if you never have, would you have enough courage today to open the door? To say, come on in here. We're going to take communion in a few moments. What a perfect moment. Having received his body and his blood. To fall on your knees before him. And say, oh my savior. Do your full work in my life. Perfect moment. And you say, Dr. O, I confess... I have done that. But I've slipped away. I said yesterday I wasn't going to reminisce. Just one. I came here as a student a little less than 100 years ago. (laughs) Not much less, but a little less. As I told you yesterday, I had made that decision. I had opened the door as a sophomore in college and God simply did a wonderful work in me. He changed me. But I had drifted. I hadn't kept on walking with my hand tightly in his. We had a retreat For all the student body, in those days the student body was small enough, I think it was about 300. So all of us could go to Camp McKee, Boy Scout camp, over in eastern Kentucky. And there Dr. Bill Arnett preached a message rather like, probably a lot better than the one I've just preached. And I knew, I knew 
I had pushed him into the guest room and I needed to let him have the house again anew. It was a good moment. I knelt there in that beautiful outdoor setting and God wrapped his arms around me. There have been other moments like that. It's a walk. It's a walk. So wherever you are on the road today, oh, let him loose. Let him loose to do his work in your life. For the sake of the world, they need you to be holy. They need me to be holy. They don't need to see Oswald in himself, as this passage makes very clear in the downward staircase. It's the work of the divine warrior. It's not me. In me, no good thing dwells. They don't need to see me. And I dare say they don't need to see you. But they sure need to see Jesus in us. Will you let him in? Let's pray.